0: Good morning, Mercy Church. It is great to be here. There's a few reasons that I'm really excited to be here this morning. The first is that I love your pastor. Uh, Pastor Spence has been a great friend of mine for a long time, and he was a a mentor to me in ministry. So at one point in my life, Spence was my boss, um, which was great. Actually, Spence was a fantastic boss, and I learned a lot of ministry just by watching him do it. So I love your pastor, so I'm grateful to be be here for that reason. But I'm also grateful to be here because I've watched this church from the very beginning. So I, I, Spence and I were working on the same team when he left to plant Mercy Church. And so I have been keeping track of you guys from afar this whole time, and I've been amazed at all that God has done in this church. And being here this morning and, and seeing it and experience it really is, is so encouraging to me as someone who's about to go out and do it. To see it is, is beautiful and inspiring. So it's great to be here for that reason. And if that's not enough, what Spence just said, that you guys are now the newest partners of Park Soap Community Church in Brooklyn, New York. So I want to say thank you to Mercy Church, not just for your example, not just for your faith, but for the way that you would come alongside us in this work. In, in, a, in a work like we're going to be a part of in a difficult city like New York, you cannot do it alone. So having you guys there to lift our arms up means the world to me. This week, I was reading a story A really famous story in the startup world has to do with a man named John Scully and Steve Jobs. In 1983, John Scully was the president of Pepsi. Pepsi was running and gunning. They were doing well. He had helped uh, the brand Pepsi become known all around the world, extremely successful, extremely rich, doing extremely well, when along comes this young, brilliant hotshot. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, you guys know, the founder of Apple, he had decided that he needed Scully to run the day-to-day operations of this new thing he was starting out in Silicon Valley. So he comes and he tries to recruit Scully. He says, all right, man, here's all the reasons you need to come and be a part of what I'm doing. Scully says, no. He recruits him again. No, no, no. Repeatedly, Scully says, no, I will not be a part of this work. Why would I leave something so big? Why would I leave something so successful and be a part of this small work that will probably not be around in five years? So in this very uh, famous uh, story, Steve Jobs prepares for his final pitch. And I actually think this takes place in New York City. They're sitting on a balcony, and Steve Jobs says this, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life, or do you want to come with me and change the world? Scully left that very year and joined Apple. Most people in this room probably have one of their, po- one of their uh, products in their pockets. They were extremely successful. But why was Steve Jobs' pitch? What made that so compelling? What made that so interesting that he would leave something so established to come join him? One word, mission. Mission. There's something hardwired in us to be a part of something bigger, to be part of a worthwhile cause, to be part of a mission that is bigger than us. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus's first pitch for the mission of the church. What did he have in mind at the very beginning? I was in New York City just last weekend, and I was visiting the church, Park Slope Community Church. I was preaching there, and an older member came up to me. He had a very thick New York accent, and he walked with a cane. He came up to me very slowly, and he said this, and it's been repeating in my mind all week. He walks up to me, and he says, Sometimes I imagine Jesus coming back and looking at his church and saying, This is not at all what I had in mind. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's kind of a haunting thought. Is this thing that we call church Anything like what Jesus had in mind when he started it 2,000 years ago? Are we in line with what Jesus intended intended the church to be? And I think this question is especially relevant today when we look at the culture at large. Because the culture at large would say, hey, I really like Jesus. I'm really into Jesus. What you're you're saying about Jesus, I'm into him. But I really don't like the church We've probably heard that that quote attributed to Gandhi, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So why is the approval rating of Jesus in our culture so high, but the approval rating of the church so low? So that's the opinion outside the church. What's the opinion inside of the church? I think if you were to poll most Christians today, and you ask them about their church, and if they were to give you a moment of honesty, I think they would say they're bored, They have a nagging sense that they ought to be a part of something bigger. There's some some type of meaningful mission that they're supposed to be a part of, but they struggle to understand what that is. And so in the meantime, they sit quietly in church. They give money occasionally. They're involved here and there. They behave the best that they can. And all the while, they wonder, is there something more to this whole deal? So this morning we are going to look at that question. What is the kind of church that Jesus had in mind? And thankfully, he told us. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We are going to look at the very first time in the New Testament that Jesus mentions the word church. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Skip down to verse 24. Then Jesus told his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So I think we can boil down the mission that Jesus gives his church here into two parts. The church's mission is to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. So that's what we're gonna look at. To know Jesus and to make Jesus known. The church's mission starts with knowing Christ as he truly is. Who you say Jesus is will determine how you follow him. So let's look at verses 13 through 18. We're brought into this really fascinating conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. And we see that underneath this whole mission of the church, there's a question. And if we get the answer to this question wrong, there's absolutely no way that we get our mission right. There's a fundamental question that lies underneath the mission of the church. You see, it's when the disciples saw Jesus for who he really was. It was only then that Jesus started talking about the church. So first, verse 13, we have to notice where this conversation is happening. It's happening in Caesarea Philippi, and that is hugely important. See, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city. It was a pagan city, and it was built on the northern, um, built within the district of Israel on the northern side. And one of the main features of this city was a huge rock face. And on this rock rock face, they would build temple after temple after temple to God after God after God. Plurality of deities all being worshiped. The most recent in the time of Jesus was a temple to Caesar himself. On it was written this, the Son of God, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So Jesus takes his disciples there to that place, in the midst of all these deities. And he asked him this question, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And they basically, popular sentiment, verse 14, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Sentiment was, Jesus, you're a great guy. You're a great prophet. Thank you very much. Yet these answers fall short. But I don't think Jesus was actually um, interested in that question. I don't think Jesus is as much interested in saying, hey, what does the culture think about me? Hey, what do the religious leaders think about me? Hey, what do all these people think about me? I don't think he was concerned about that at all. He wanted to get to this question in a very Socratic method. He said to them, okay, but who do you say that I am? And that is the question that all of us have to answer. And it undergirds the mission of God. Who is Jesus really? Not what what does the culture think about me? Not what does your family think about me, but what do you really believe about me? Not what do you just say with your lips, but what do you truly believe about me? So maybe you're in here this morning, and you're new to the whole church deal, and you're still trying to answer that question. That's totally fine. I know that Mercy Church is a safe place For you to explore those questions. And the pastors and the other leaders would love to help you walk through that. That's a great place to be if you're in that spot this morning. And you're joined throughout, you're joined in that search with thousands and thousands and thousands of people all throughout history. I think about C.S. Lewis. As a professor at Oxford, he was haunted by this question: Who was Jesus really? He started going through his options. Okay, who was Jesus? What could he have been? Was he just a great teacher? Was he kind of a manipulative zealot? Was he a lunatic running around telling everybody that he was God? Or was he, like Peter said, was he the Messiah, the son of the living God? And I love the way C.S. Lewis reasoned through this. This is his quote. He says, can you imagine him reasoning? A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't have be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. So who do you... Say that I am. That's the question that Jesus is asking. Verse 16, Peter, who is the most outspoken of the disciples, he speaks up as the representative of the whole group. And this is what he says, verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But Peter didn't get there through reasoning. It was through God's divine revelation, Peter gets it right. And this phrase that he utters is packed full of meaning, Christ comes from uh, the word meaning Messiah, anointed one. It was understood at that time as the deliverer who would come and save God's people. It was understood as the son of David who would come and restore the kingdom of Israel, peace and prosperity. This was not a normal prophet. This was the king. This was the, per- the person that through whom God would accomplish all his purposes in the world. The Christ was the king who would bring the kingdom. And the church that Jesus envisions has Jesus as the king at the center, a church that knows him as king, a church that knows him as the hero of their story. How many of you guys remember the telev- television show One Tree Hill? You guys, anybody watch that show? Okay, One Tree Hill. Uh, when I was about 17 years old, a few friends of mine decided it would be a great idea to go uh, be extras on the show One Tree Hill, uh, which was filmed somewhere on the coast of North Carolina. So they say, yeah, this is great, we're going to go, we're going to be extras on this show. So what happens is you get there, and they funnel you into a big tent, and when the scene comes that they want you to be a part of, they kind of look around, and they pick people, and you go and be an extra. And the scene that we got chose, uh, chosen for was a bar scene, and uh, it was like a nightclub with a bar, and at the bar was sitting Chad Michael Murray. You guys remember Chad Michael Murray? So back in the day, Chad Michael Murray was like the teen heartthrob uh, that everybody loved, so there was Chad Michael Murray, and here, probably about 10 feet back, were me and my friend. And, you know, the thing about being an extra on a TV show is, I know this is shocking, it, it, that you're not the star of the show. I mean, you, you barely, if you, got, if you get your finger in the shot, I mean, you're doing quite well. I mean, it's not about you in the least. It's all about Chad Michael Murray, and it's about you filling space in the back. But my friend, he decided that he was going to be on TV. He was just determined, I am going to be on TV. So they set, they set the scene up. We're back here. And my friend starts making these moves like every two seconds. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> he's moving up. There's Chad. And by the time they're filming the scene, here's Chad, Michael Murray. Here's my friend. And he's kind of got this goofy grin like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be on TV. And so they film the scene. And my friend was like, I'm, I'm like going to be all over TV, guys. I and mean, he's telling everybody, I'm going to be on TV. I was on TV. It was a star and it was me. The day came, the show aired, my friend was ecstatic. When I watched it, I learned the truth. Here's what it was. For one second, if you don't pause it on Netflix, you can't even see it. For one second, there's my friend, goofy smile, there's Chad Michael Murray. Right behind the star. And I tell this story because we all have the ability, we all have this ability to leverage our gifts for something bigger, for something greater, for something lasting and something meaningful. But the problem that you're going to experience is that it's not about you. It's about Jesus. He's the king. He's the Messiah. So we can strive and we can work to weasel ourselves into the picture. And you could probably be pretty successful. You can weasel yourself into the picture for about one second. You might have a moment of fame. But he's the star of the show. He's always gonna, Jesus is always going to be the star of the show. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the hero, not us. So Peter answered it right. He said, it's about you. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And who you say Jesus really is will determine everything about how you follow him. A right view of Jesus will always lead to a right view of mission. So if you think Jesus is a great teacher in here this morning... You're going to look to him occasionally for a, a tidbit of knowledge. If you think Jesus was a great example, when you need inspiration, you might look to him for a minute. But if you, like Peter, believe that he, he's the promised Messiah who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer death and hell, and to rule as king over everything, now that's going to change the way you live your life. A church on mission knows Christ. Second, we're going to see a church on mission makes Jesus known See, once we get this fundamental question right, Jesus shifts the conversation. He said, Okay, you got it right, Peter. And then he starts explaining the mission and the purpose of the church. And this is incredible. Jesus gives us four metaphors in this passage four metaphors that each tell us something significant about how Jesus envisioned the church. Stay with me. We have a rock, we have a gate, we have a key, and we have a cross. Okay? We have a rock a gate, a key, and a cross, the rock. The foundation of the church's mission is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus talks about the foundation of the church being the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. See, on this foundation, I'm building a community of people, not a, not a building, ecclesia in the New Testament always means community. A community of people, and Jesus said, this is my community. It's not based on a particular nation. It's based on me. It's based on Jesus himself. But can we stop here for just one second? Because this is really important. This is extremely important. This little verse is the most debated verse in all of church history. There has been, no more, there, there has been more ink spilled on this one verse than any other verse in the entire Bible. So let me explain what's going on here. The, qu- it, it, the debate centers around this question. What is the rock on which Jesus is building his church? What is the rock? You see, traditionally, Catholics have said, well, obviously, the rock is Peter. And it, that they claim that that means that he was the first pope, and the popes have been carried down since then. And there's another group that said, no, 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 no. The rock is not Peter. The rock is Peter's confession. Don't you just see, like, He confesses that Jesus is Messiah, and then he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. So Peter's confession. And there's actually a third camp now, and they say, no, 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 no. It's not Peter, and it's not Peter's confession. It's actually this big rock I was telling you about in Caesarea Philippi. He's saying, literally, on this rock, I will build my church. In tough places, in difficult places, in places where they worship other gods, I will build my church there. And so we have this debate that has been raging for thousands of years. So which is it? I really think all three are true. And let me explain. The foundation of the church is a people in a place proclaiming a message. How could you separate them? A message always comes from a messenger, and that messenger necessarily delivers that message in a place. The church is not a group of trained professionals. You know, where you guys come here every Sunday morning, you hire a bunch of trained professionals, they come up here, they deliver a religious message, and you feel good, filled up, and leave. That is not the church. No, Jesus is building a community of people who share the gospel. Without the help of a pastor, they they get equipped in this place, and they get sent out to be a people in a place declaring a message. Churches make, must make discipleship the core of what they're doing, and then send people out into the world to love and to serve and to share Christ. So a church equips, and then a church sends their members into battle behind enemy lines. In two thousand three, there was a, a ship called the U.S. Sorry, the SS United States. It was purchased by a luxury cruise liner. But in 1952, this ship was constructed for a very specific purpose. It was commissioned by the U.S. government to carry troops into battle. It was huge. It was the largest ocean liner ever built exclusively in the United States. It was fast. It had the fastest time going across the the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, than any other cruise liner in history. It was well designed. The, some of the greatest naval architects in the entire world had designed the ship. But here's the problem. It never actually accomplished the purpose for which it was built. It was a beautiful ship. It was a huge ship. It was a fast ship. But the ship never did what it was supposed to do. It never actually took soldiers into battle. It came close to a few times. Cuban Missile Crisis, it was right there. It was ready to go. But it never went in. It was ready, but it never engaged. So eventually, they converted this ship into a luxury cruise liner. It, it, it traded hands several times, and now I don't know who owns it. But I wonder if sometimes that's what's happened to the church, that we have the same problem, that Jesus has given us this purpose and this mission, and we have busied ourselves doing all this other great stuff, but we've never actually accomplished the very thing that Jesus gave us to do, to be a people delivering a message to a particular place. So what is that message? Peter already told us, Messiah, son of the living God. It's the most amazing message imaginable. Jesus is Messiah, the son of the living God. And we know, we have the benefit of knowing the whole story. Peter just knew a little part of the story, but we, we saw the whole thing play out in the scriptures. Jesus would go on to live a perfect life. He would Die a sacrificial death on our behalf, and he would be raised from the dead in power. And how do you summarize this message for the world? Grace. Do you feel as if no one loves you? God loves you. Do you feel ignored or overlooked? God is pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. What if you're running from him? He's pursuing you. Do you struggle with guilt from past sin? God offers complete forgiveness. Are you broken? God offers restoration. And if that was not enough, what he wants to do in your life, he's saying, yeah, I want to heal. I want to restore. I'm pursuing you with my love and my grace. If that's not enough, eventually he's going to do that for the entire world. So all the brokenness that we see in our city, in our country, God is going to make it all new. That's the message. It's beautiful. So we have the rock. Second, we have the gate. The aim of the church's mission is outward, and it cannot be stopped. Verse 18, 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. For years, I really thought this verse was talking about something completely different than what it actually is. I thought this ver- verse meant that God would protect the church from all of Satan's attacks. So the church seems to be under attack, and you say, oh, don't worry, don't worry, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. So the image that I thought for years and years and years was the church is like a walled city. Trying to block an, an attacking army, I, I think of that scene from The Lord of the Rings where the orcs are, are, are coming upon the city, and they put all their resources into one final stand in the castle. You know, they're manning the walls. They're making. We have to make this wall stand, and that's what I thought the church was like: hunker down, fortify the walls. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. But the verse is actually about the very opposite. <laughs> This verse is about Satan's inability to keep us from plundering his kingdom, not his inability to plunder ours. As we, the people of God, faithfully share the message of Christ, he promises that the mission would advance further and further into enemy territory. And think about it. Have you ever used a gate as an offensive weapon? Have you ever been watching the news, of the five o'clock news, and like, man in critical condition, <laughs> attacked by gate? No. The gate is a defensive weapon. And as the church charges forward on its mission, even the powers of death and hell and Satan will not, cannot stop it. That's the promise. There's this famous story from the Civil War about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, the, uh, the Union Army had finally pushed the Confederates back into Richmond. So that's the scene. The Confederate Army pushed the are the Union Army, pushed the Confederates back into Richmond, and they're at the war room. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, a lot of his generals, and in runs this excited general. He is thrilled. He's ecstatic. He runs in. He's breathing heavy, and he says, President Lincoln, I am pleased to tell you, we have finally pushed the enemy out of our territory and back into his. And he was expecting a clap, a pat on the back. Way to go, man. Great work. Lincoln stopped. He looked up. And he said to all the other generals in the room, he said, When will my generals learn that the whole country is our territory? Jesus is not content to be Lord of the church. He died to be the Lord of the entire earth, and he will accomplish his purpose. The mission of the church is unstoppable. I love the way one theologian put it, J.C. Ryle. Stay with me on this quote Nothing can altogether overthrow or destroy the church, its members may be persecuted. Oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros, the bloody marys have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. It is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. As a part of Christ's church, do you realize that you are a part of a global movement that cannot be stopped? Three, we have a gate, we have a rock, and we have the keys. The keys, the keys, The authority of the church's mission comes from Christ himself. Look at verse 19 with me. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The disciples at this point had been thoroughly confused. Can you imagine them? So we we tend to look back at the scriptures and be like, how did you not get this? But we have the end of the story. They're living this. They were thoroughly confused. Okay, so you're telling me we have a king. Yes, you have a king. You're telling me we have a kingdom. Yes, you have a kingdom. Okay. Why isn't the king bringing the kingdom? Why isn't the king ruling in his kingdom? Why are you talking about handing us the keys to a kingdom that you're bringing? They were confused about the keys. And I think sometimes we're confused about the keys too. Very simply, Jesus gave authority to his church. Think about it like an embassy. An embassy represents a nation on foreign soil. They speak the language of another kingdom. They embody the values of another kingdom, and they represent another kingdom on foreign soil. That is the church. And there's so much that we could could talk about the keys of the kingdom in this little verse. We could talk about church discipline. We could talk about what binding and loosing and all that stuff is. But I want to make a very simple point this morning. Jesus is handing out keys to his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is handing out keys to his kingdom. Every Saturday before I preach, I try to talk to my six-year-old son about what I'm preaching because I figure if I can't explain it to him, it's not clear enough yet. So he, he was asking me, he said, okay, dad, what is the deal with the keys? Actually, it confused him too a little bit. And I just said this. I said, Jesus gives his followers the keys to his kingdom and we get to open the door and invite people in for dinner. That's it. Jesus gives us the keys and we get to invite people in for dinner. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine you have an uber rich uncle and he says to you, Hey, I have this mansion. It's right on the beach. Here are the keys. I want you to take the keys, use it anytime you want. It's yours. And more than that, I want you to invite all your friends. And while you're at it, give them a key too. Make, go to Lowe's, make copies of this key, start handing them out to your friends. You'll be like, Okay, that's, that's pretty good. Imagine you do that and the uncle says, There's you got 200 people, this is imagine you're in college, you have 200 people in this mansion now, and he comes back to you and he says, well, actually, hey, here's the thing, I actually own all the houses on this beach, all of them, yeah, I mean, mile that way, yep, mile that way, I own all of them, here are the keys to all of them, start handing them out to your friends, make copies of the keys, invite people in, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it, that would be unbelievable, we would all lose our minds, the invitation that Christ gives us is even better. The keys to the kingdom of God itself. Kingdom of righteousness. Kingdom of peace. Kingdom of justice. Hey, church, here are the keys. It's yours. Invite people in for dinner. What did Peter do with the keys? Well, Pentecost. He said, okay, 3,000 new people, let's let them in, let's hand them the keys. Cornelius, the Gentiles. At this point, it was only Jewish people in the kingdom of God. And Peter uses his keys to say, well, actually, there's a whole world of people called the Gentiles. Let's give them the keys. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they thought they had the keys of the kingdom in order to keep people out. Jesus gives the keys to his disciples to let people in. Think about this. In the first century, the Jewish leaders, they would say this prayer. Blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They would pray that. Thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. But then Jesus comes on the scene. This is unbelievable. He shakes everything up. What do you see in the book of Acts? If you look at the book of Acts, the story of the early church, look who comes to Christ first. The Ethiopian eunuch. A Gentile, a girl who had a spirit of divination, a slave, and Lydia, a woman. Now, all these people, it's like Jesus was saying, all these people that you didn't like, all these people that were different from you, all these people that were on the outside of your little religious community, everyone that you would view an outsider, their family, they have keys. They have keys to your house, they have keys to the kingdom. You don't support them, you don't love them, you don't accept them because they are like you, but because there's a whole new community that has been built around me. So as the church, we have the keys of the kingdom of God and we have been given the chance to open the door wide for all who would come in. So think about this in your life. Who would be the outsiders? Who would be the ones that you said would never come in, would never come in? Those who look different from you, those who vote different from you, those whose lives are completely opposite of yours. It's as if Jesus is saying, make a copy of the keys at Lowe's, start handing them out. They gotta come through the door, which is Jesus, but give them the key and let them in. Open the door wide for all who would come. Lastly, we have a rock, we have a gate, we have a key, and we have a cross. Look at verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Very simply, Jesus is saying, as you follow me, as the church pursues its mission, it must do so in the posture of service and sacrifice. So you say, okay, all this sounds great. What should it look like? I can't tell you what it could look like here in Charlotte. I can't tell tell you what exactly it would look like in your neighborhood or in your house, but I can tell you the posture it will look like. It will look like service, and it will look like sacrifice. There are these upside-down values in the kingdom of God. And Christ is calling his church to look like him. These upside-down values where when you actually are giving yourself away, you actually are most fulfilled. When you find yourself sacrificing, giving something up, you actually feel filled up. He calls us to serve others. What does that mean? That means we have to have a posture of putting the good of others before yourself. So in Christ's mission, what does it look like? Constantly a posture of putting the good of others before yourself. The scriptures say that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It's going to look like sacrifice. Giving up something you love for something you love even more. Giving up something you love for something you love even more Jesus, his mission, his glory, his fame in the earth. So, what does it look like for us to live a life of sacrifice and service? There's a famous story about an overgrown tomb in Cairo. It's dusty, it's dirty, nothing spectacular about it at all. But in that tomb lies the body of William Borden. William Borden was the heir of the the Borden Milk Company, which at the beginning of the 1900s was one of the largest companies in the United States. It's still a big company, but back then it was huge. Borden went to Yale. He had everything lined up for a life of luxury and a life of power. When When he was a teenager, he came to know Jesus, and everything changed. He came to know Jesus, and all of his values started to flip on their head, He thought life was about accumulating wealth and power and fame. And then he came to know Christ and all those things were flipped upside down. He started giving away thousands of dollars to missions. Eventually he felt like God was calling him to bring the gospel to Muslims. So he packed his bags, he left his inheritance, he left his title, he boarded a ship to Cairo. After only four months of ministry in Egypt, He contracted spinal meningitis, and he died at the age of 25. Right before he died, someone asked him about these decisions. You can imagine someone saying, like, dude, like, what do you think about all this? Like, that's got to be, oh, I mean, you probably wish you stayed at, you know, New Haven. I mean, what do you think? He simply replied, no regrets. No regrets. On his tombstone in Cairo is this description. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Simply what it said on this tombstone. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Is there another explanation for your life apart from faith in Christ? Could someone look at your life and say, apart from faith in Christ, that kind of courage, that kind of service, that kind of sacrifice, that type of hope makes no sense. That's what I want people to say about my church in Brooklyn. That's what I want The city of Charlotte to say about Mercy Church. What would it look like for Charlotte to look at Mercy Church and say, this makes no sense. What they're doing makes absolutely no sense apart from what they're saying about Jesus being actually true. It seems like everyone is trying to get more and more and more money. The people of Mercy Church seem to be giving it away freely. Most people seem to be trying to gain more and more power. The people of Mercy Church seem to keep giving power away and serving in the places that no one else wants to be. Most churches in the area, they seem bent on putting more and more people into their building. Mercy Church seems to keep sending people out to advance the gospel elsewhere. This is the type of church that Jesus envisioned, a church that reflects his life and his ministry. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a of servant. That's the gospel. Christ became man, dwelt among us, gave his life for us, rose from the dead in power, and said, "How I lived, you live, not by your own strength, you can never do it, but by my power inside of you. You have the keys. There's no gate of hell that can stop you. You're building on the rock that is the firmest foundation you can possibly imagine. but you will follow me as you carry your cross. As I carried mine, you will carry yours in sacrifice and service. Let's pray this morning. Let's pray this morning a prayer that God will always, always answer for his church. God, use me. Father, thank you, thank you for this word from Matthew 16. God, we so desperately want to be a church that follows you. We so desperately want to be a church that lives in service and sacrifice to the community around us. A church that's a people declaring a message in all the places where you've put us. Declaring the message in our homes and in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. God, we wanna be that type of people here in Charlotte. We wanna be that type of people in Brooklyn. God, we wanna use the keys that you've given us widely. We wanna open the doors wide open for everyone that is unlike us. Say, come on in. God, because you've given us so much more. That's what you did for us. As the outsider, you brought us in. God, I pray that would be true of me. God, I pray that would be true of this church. I pray that would be true at Park Slope Community Church in Brooklyn. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.